Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to the Neil Before Pod interview segment. I'm your host Craig and I've recently had the pleasure of speaking to actor Colton Wilkie, the lead actor in Thunderbird. We talk about life experience preparing him for acting, going on wild adventures and sunken trains. Sit back, relax and enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined on Neil Before Pod with Colton Wilkie. Hi, how are you doing? Good, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Happy to have you on. I watched Thunderbird a couple of weeks ago now and I really enjoyed it. So well done with the film, well done with producing it and being in it and all that stuff. So it was a really good achievement. Oh, thank you very much. It's just so cool to think that you're in Ireland. I mean, sorry, you're in Scotland and that you saw the film and you enjoyed the film. And it's really nice to be chatting to you about it. Crazy around the world. I'm so happy that at least the reach has gotten out there. Yeah, it seems to have gained arms and legs. Not every film does that. So can you talk a bit about how it got to that stage, how it got picked up and distributed and how it even got made, I guess. Well, I had started the company Ocean Twilight Films in 2016, partner uh, Michael Morrison, who was the other producer. You know, we had wanted to do a Pacific Northwest-based film because this is where we're from. The name Ocean Twilight, for example, I, I named that after a halibut longlining fishing vessel that I worked on. So that vessel that you saw at the beginning of the film is uh, called the Ocean Twilight, and I named that after the boat. I have shares in that vessel, and so uh, that's the name Ocean Twilight, just to give you that history. It also made for filming, when we spoke with Nick, we wanted to make sure that there was some elements that we needed to include. For example, the story had to be set on the Pacific Northwest, and we needed to have a fishing boat in it, for example. And so he was great for telling that, bringing those story pieces together. And then I know Mike Morrison had brought a few guys to interview for the job and, and Nick was most aligned and had a great idea and vision. And we were able to work with him and come up with this story. And I guess Thunderbird, you know, obviously with the Thunderbird spirit and mythology in the Pacific Northwest is a really important figure in, in the coastal First Nations here in British Columbia. And tying that in with fishing and kind of this isolated life that a lot of people live out in the Pacific Northwest because they're, you're so remotely connected in this vast area with small little towns. And we just felt like the backdrop plus a few of the key pieces of things we could work with, like the, the beautiful nature and the spiritualism of the valley and, and the, the setting plus the fishing. It all made sense to make a Pacific Northwest film called Thunderbird. I'm cycling back to what the first initial question was, but kind of how we got started. In 2016, we had the financing in place for the film. And and again, with just a company name after Fishboat, that was the beginning of the origins. And this is our first feature film. And we're super excited about it. We went to Cannes, at least the film market, to try to get some distribution. Never had done that process before and wanted to get a really good idea of what it would take to sell a film and, and get it seen uh, around the world. And, and then we had a, a, a large festival tour that was set for the end of 2019 to go through 2020. And as I'm sure you know, that stopped rather quickly. So we made it to Synquest down in San Jose and it was awesome. And we actually had plans to go to, to the UK and for a couple festivals there and things got shut down and that kind of changed the whole, I think, sales market for film and TV shows and documentaries. So doing it for our first time and, and also having this now film distribution industry changing it was almost a good thing to come in at this point because we weren't set with any sort of ways like dvd sales or something that seemed to be what everybody was telling us to do but just being able to have this changing marketplace with this asset and figuring out where's the best place for us to actually sell this film and and try to get it into as many people's uh, living rooms as we can if we're not picked up by Netflix or one of the large streaming services. And also, how does that process work? How do we go about sending our film out and trying to get it some attention and, and legs, like you say? And so after like a year, basically, of just going through that process, which I can't really go into crazy detail about how that was uh, outside of the fact that you need to be patient for anyone else who's trying just, you know, pull up your shorts or pants and tie your belt tight because it's it's a long, grueling process. And it's definitely something I don't think many lead actors are involved with that side of the production. Obviously, just with 2020, it was a whole new world. So really navigating our way. But yeah, we released the Canadian viewing rights on just the Vimeo platform, which is really great for us. It's like everyone all across Canada have been able to go and purchase it directly there. And the Vimeo streaming service, we believe, has gotten a lot of attention over the last year and more people are, are actually watching their things there instead of 
going the routine routes on Netflix and things like that. So in Canada, it's been a really great response. We're excited about that. And then just having it up on Amazon Prime for the UK and the United States also gives all the viewers there an option just to go directly to purchase the film. So at least as Thunderbird being our first indie darling, we're really happy with that. And in October, Lighthouse Productions or Lighthouse Distribution in Germany is releasing the film in October. I can't quite remember what the Taiwanese company is that's releasing the film, but might be <laughs> Taiwan, we don't know. <laughs> Just all these weird little subsidiaries that pick things up and put their name on it and chuck them out. Exactly. Now, right now we're in the phase of just like, okay, let's sell the rest of the rights on all the territories we can. I always find it interesting to think, like, man, you might make it, your film might just take off in, well, just who knows? It could be the smallest little country that somehow gets their eyes on it. I thought that that was kind of cool about seeing the film market in Cannes, which just the reality of, sometimes I guess maybe in the UK, it's like we think about this BAFTAs and the Oscars and that there's these two main, you know, druggernauts of film, but then you realize, and I'm sure obviously you know this, having a podcast that the whole world's making art and there's no shortage of creatives out there and people who are making really great stories and a lot of viewing eyes from places you just really wouldn't expect. Yeah, as you say, it's getting it in front of people that's the hardest part, just getting it out there. Because you hear about a lot of people, they'll stick their film up on YouTube or something like that just to make sure people see it. And obviously there's no mind on making any money or whatever when you do it that way, but it's just a case of get it seen and then go from there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I find the the indie feature reach, it's either going to work with the way that online platforms are working right now, but at the same time, in terms of like people having the option to be able to just go straight to buying a film, but getting the attention to and gaining the clickbait or however you want to do it with Insta ads or stuff like that. It, it's hard when you're fighting against or the opposing factor is these massive companies that are now you look at Netflix, they're all Netflix features and things like that. So they definitely have the marketplace, I find. Yeah. And it's technology means that it grows the more services that exist the more opportunities it is it's not as simple as straight to video or in the cinema like it used to be so yeah the modern day is useful for something i suppose yeah so i i hope it benefits uh, all the indie feature type of creatives out there yeah for sure i'm glad and like i mentioned we're very fortunate with the response that we've received for thunderbird and i think that it would be very crushing for someone who spends three or four years of their lives not to get uh the acknowledgement for their hard work, but it just doesn't work that way when you're dealing in this world where critics are kind of your way scale for how your product is. Someone's like, hey man, I feel sucked. It's like, that's tough. <laughs> as long as it can be constructive rather than just mean. Yeah. When I write reviews, I try to be constructive rather than mean. So even if I don't like something, I try and say something. Yeah, well, you're a god, you're a god said. <laughs> I don't mean this from experience. I haven't seen any terrible reviews, but you got to feel for the odd one that would come to somebody who really cares about what they're doing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So how did you get into the world of acting and producing? What made you decide to pursue that path? Because I read from your blurb that I was sent that you started off as sort of a diving instructor and a diving team and things like that. Yeah, I'll try to summarize it quickly, but it definitely was an unorthodox approach to the whole field. I grew up in, like I said, rural Canada and in a city called Kelowna and played a lot of sports and did a lot of hiking. And as much as you want to go down the Hollywood acting path or aspire to be a filmmaker it's just not something that even seems like a realistic possibility especially you're just kind of that pac-man mentality of young males in sports going to drama class was not definitely something that a lot of my friends or peers were doing but i had always had it in there and it was kind of ingrained that it was something i always wanted to pursue but it kind of just buried itself away and right after high school i went up to northern alberta to work in the oil sands and on the oil rigs and through there, I was able to, to save money to go to the Canadian Diving Institute of Diving Dynamics. And so I, I, I was able to get a diving instructing career from there and also just work underwater industrially. And I got a job in Southeast Alaska on a vessel called the Nautilus Swell, where guests would come from all around the world and be able to see the, the wonders of the Pacific Northwest underwater, both below and topside because there's just whales everywhere and mink whales sperm whales and humpbacks and killer whales everywhere there's whales and then there's grizzly bears and eagles and then underwater there's more biodiversity than the barrier reef there's strawberry 
anemones. Like you go underwater and you look up and it's emerald green. You can imagine the beauty of the region. It's beautiful trees, mountains, ocean, and then you go underwater, you can look down and there's fields of strawberry and anemones and white plumos cloud sponges that look like something from a Dr. Seuss film. An octopus, you know, who can grow giant Pacific octopus, who can grow 18 feet from tentacle to tentacle at their peak. It's just absolutely amazing region. And guests would come all around the world for 10 days just to see this. And I had the luxury of being on there for the whole season of the summer. And as long as we were allowed to operate up there every summer, it was four and a half months. And all these things, I was writing screenplays. And that was like the thing. I'm sure yourself, it's like, oh, I have an idea. How can I get this idea on the paper and teaching myself at least Evernote? And then finally the final draft, just the best way to actually get my thoughts down on paper where it makes sense and is, is readable in a script format. And that, that started right after high school when I went up to the oil rigs, just kind of as a hobby. And over time, over the next few years, that just manifested really quick to a point where I was thinking about it all the time, even when I'd be underwater with fish and guests and octopus and stuff. I couldn't wait to get back to the engine room to write about these ideas that I had. And because I worked on this vessel in Alaska, I had to relocate to a city called Victoria, which is actually the capital of British Columbia. It's a university town, very artsy town. It's very green boating, we'll say. And it was kind of my first eye-opening experience to like all the arts that were there. There was writing acting academies, dance studios, like just everywhere it seemed to be some sort of artistic based thing going on. And I had just gotten to the point where, and this is kind of, you know, I don't know if you've had a similar experience, but it's like you're going one direction and it it's right, but there's this other thing that's yawning or yearning at you. And it's very difficult, I think, if you have a career path to make a change, especially at any point in your life, but at a young age, kind of this route was set for me. And I could definitely go and continue to work on these vessels and become a captain and work a great career, I thought. But it was kind of this make or break where I'm like, well, I need to take this big leap to see if this is it. I don't want to join a four-year acting program or a four-year writing program or something. I just need to go see in a diploma year, at least, if this is right, because it's all I'm thinking about right now. So the same captain that I had on the Nautilus Swell in Alaska, he also ran a halibut longliner. So... The vessel Ocean Twilight, which you've seen in the beginning of the film, is what I named the company after. So the company is called Ocean Twilight Films. The vessel is called Ocean Twilight. And my captain from the Nautilus Swell, named Tim Couturier, offered me a job. He's like, you've worked up north. You've worked with me at sea. You can probably work on the Halibut Longliner with me. Because it's a very grueling job. There's absolutely nothing pretty about commercial fishing. And it's this savage, primal experience of feeding humans and uh, yeah so that was just eye-opening but at this point I was working on the dive vessel working on this fishing vessel and living in Victoria and I had gone to Captain Tim and it's funny because I don't share these stories with really anybody I, I don't do too many of these talks so this is actually it's nice to be <laughs> it's just making me reminisce here but you're getting a, a unique story I'm sure maybe you probably haven't heard but I remember telling Captain Tim I go to him we're like 30 hours west of a place called Port Hardy, where we actually filmed the film. But in the middle of the Pacific, I just went to him. I was like, Tim, I said, Captain, I want to tell you something. I signed up for acting school and I'm going this October, which was like three months from the time. And to my surprise, he's like, well, I don't think you're smart for doing it, but you got to pursue your dreams and we're here to support you, which is, it's the last thing I think people would think about commercial fishermen being understanding and, and thoughtful. They supported me. And then, yeah, the rest is kind of history. I went to acting school and and I absolutely fell in love with it and realized this is what I want to pursue. And, and at that point, no different than the other jobs I'd done, I, I went all in. I was very fortunate to have the Ocean Twilight. I was able to fish for a month and a half to two months each year. And that would take care of me for the remainder of the year. So I could really focus on writing and acting and, as you know, producing and and it seemed like the best thing for me to do it with my time was to start a production company and allocate my time to making my own film. That's really where the root of it started. The whole shebang, not just one thing, even though my skill set at that point was more of acting. Anyways, there's a long, short story, but that's all I got for you. But that's basically how, for me, how I got into it.
this really big leap of faith that I should go to this acting school and see how it makes me feel. It's a really interesting story. It's just very varied in the path you took to get there. I always like to hear about how people get into the fields that they get into. And often it is just this kind of winding road of, I did this, and then I did this, and then I got here, and somehow I'm here. So it's, it's always interesting to hear that sort of stuff. Like, I know I've talked to some people, like, I've been dreaming about this since I was 13, and the minute <laughs> I went to this, I went to this act. I was like, that's great. But I stumbled and hit ping-pongs, and, you know, I had my finger almost cut off. I had frostbite. Like, I was attacked by octopus. I was fishing and meeting crazy people from all around the world. And then you wind up here. So it was when I went to acting school, at least, I, I definitely didn't have anything in common with any of the other students except for one other guy. And so it is really interesting. And I definitely think that I have a very unique background at least. But the thing that I think also was, and I would suggest this to any young actor or actress, was that the life experience that I got to see, whether it be like the hardy men and women of Northern Alberta who are away from their families, doing an extremely hard job in extremely difficult conditions. And as a young kid, I was absorbing all of that, getting to see their personalities and meeting these characters that you could try to portray them as best you can, but the best way to see it is to meet them. And then on the diving vessel, there's all these people from all around the world sharing their stories of their success and their triumphs and tribulation. And and now how they're in their glory age, just traveling and, and retired and all the characters on the fishing vessel and at sea that you meet, all that really builds a huge catalog of things to draw from for me at least when I think of acting and emotion and and all these other things that you need the life experience I think it's better than a four-year degree and going to acting school it's real people that you're trying to emulate in movies anyways so to go out and meet them and to have that experience I think was extremely valuable for me it's what I have to use as I go forward as my studies in terms of that's how I learned and didn't Thunderbird you share an accolade with Eddie Furlong in Terminator 2. You got the introducing credit, which is kind of rare these days, actually, or it's usually reserved for very young people introducing this person. Not that I'm saying you're old, of course, I'm just saying it's usually reserved for kids. So what was it like working on your first feature film as an actor under, you know, a director like Nicholas with sort of heavy hitters like Aaron Douglas? I say that because I'm a Battlestar Galactica fan and I think he's amazing. So working with People like that on your first acting job in a feature film. Yeah, I was extremely excited, but very nervous at the same time. With what I just told you with these other careers, they were always intense and things. But yeah, this might not be physical labor, but the mental game leading up to the first day of shooting, I guess I just didn't realize how nervous I was going to be. I had scenes with Natalie Brown right away. And she's been working for 10 years and I'm coming out here so green. She could have been a diva or I don't know. Man, she was just amazing. And Aaron Douglas was so cool. And you just see the presence he had while he was on set. I was extremely nervous. I remember calling my dad at like 4.30 in the morning a few times. And he was very kind and said, you know, just call me if you... Because I couldn't really sleep on the days leading up. And I had spent uh, like the month prior to the start of the film. Will Brooke lived on a boat by himself. So I thought the best thing to do was just to kind of isolate myself until I go out there. But in doing so, it it did make me anxious, which was the point, I guess, and nervous. And that just amplified as I got closer to showing. So I was super scared. But at the same time, like all things that are fear-based and you're worried about failing, you just know, and I know from experience personally, that right on the other side of that is jubilation, excitement, and hard work, and all those things that are great. So it was never a point of doubting myself for the process it was just a lot of nerves going in natalie was so kind to me it's hard to even describe just how we just clicked at a point where we got along like friends and i didn't know that that would be the experience right i just didn't know that that's how it would work out and everybody from nicholas as well the whole crew everyone was just really kind to each other and there was this really collaborative camaraderie which is what i experienced on the fishing vessels and other places but for your first time on a film set that was huge so i was very fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of really great kind workers and talented people and your character there's a lot there as well there's a lot to play with you know has a lot of guilt and a lot of regret and a lot beneath the surface so that must have been really interesting to sink your teeth into especially as a, a first performance Yeah, Will was an interesting character and and the kudos to Nick, of course, for weaving in all these different things for me to play with. The fishing thing aside, that's very fortunate that I know what that's all about. 
But building up all these things like missing a sister and how that would affect somebody who also doesn't have his parents and the, the stakes that are built up for him with this feeling of guilt slash resentment with my counterparts of William Bellew, who's a great actor and who him and I fight and, and these weird kind of places that I had to, to live in all along the way thinking, what would it be like truly to be alone in the world? Because I'm not, I'm surrounded by a lot of people that I'm in love with and my parents and family and I'm surrounded by great things. So just to put myself in Will's shoes, to realize my sister's missing, her roommates turned up and just to have that pushing forward the character yet blocking him with these hardships with, like I say, going into town, being a little dissociative and weird, we'll say not very happy as just a human being. So blocking Will mentally was the challenge that I felt I had to build those blocks up in the acting side was that it was difficult to just put those together to a place where I felt like I could will, will forward while battling all the adversity that he's mentally up against, because it is a big mental battle for him. Mm -hmm. For example, with creating Sarah or the illusion of Sarah, I had never met the actress or anything. I had to build that character up. And so what I had done is I had started to grab a bunch of tokens and pieces of things. Like I got earrings that I maybe never had given to her or always wanted to give to her, but never did. And I put those in an envelope and I got like lavender and just built that up that the smell of lavender was always how maybe she played in flowers as a little girl. And that was her thing. And and created these things and used little tokens and stuff that I could grab from the script, at least just to say, this is Sarah to me and really try to build her up months prior to filming as something that I'm really yearning to see and find. It's difficult because it's not like Will had a ton of lines to say, but it was all very much so built internally. And I at least tried to portray somebody who was struggling and you could see he's kind of fed up, but also just struggling with that reality that he's got to go to all these places he doesn't want to go and confront all these things that he doesn't want to confront. And that all stems around that dark kind of presence that's been built up in his mind. Yeah, and the scenes you spent with Natalie's character as well, I really like that dynamic, how she was really in search of the truth and he was hiding something and she's always trying to get that out of him and he's holding back. So I like that dynamic. I think that worked really well. That one scene that stands out is the scene where they're just in the car and she's talking away and he's just giving her nothing. And it's things like that. I think that's what makes you know the, all the character stuff in the film work. Yeah, I completely agree. I know that scene. It was really funny because I, I felt like when we were filming it, it felt like she's talking to a child, you know, when you're talking to a little kid. It's like, you hungry? He's like, no. Well, he's always like, no. And he's like, coffee? You know, it's like kind of that just like tease and like he turns on the radio because he likes the song. Like I just found that such subtle little things, but it actually shows so much of here she is. Like, she's like, okay, who is this guy? Like she clearly uh, like, you know, is working with him and, and trying to figure him out. And that it's just funny you reference that scene because I love that scene so much because it actually shows so much internally what's going on with them and, and the dynamic that's at play with the two of them as she talks to him like an infant child, trying to get him to open up, which is a really strong and I think good writing by Nick because it shows Will's trapped kind of in that moment as a kid. That's the part of him is still that young kid who lost his parents, who isn't able to talk about his emotion like an adult should. So I find that that, that was good. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. And she's kind of naive as well because she still thinks that people can be at their best and then you've got Aaron Douglasley's character who's just, nope, it's all buggered. <laughs> We're not going to get any better here. It is the way it is. People die. quite like that as well. I mean, it's very nihilistic, but I liked how it was portrayed. Yeah, Aaron, it's funny how perfect he was at that character. He just absolutely nailed spot on. And it's very true. He's seen it all before. He's tired of the reality. It's like, this is somebody coming in from the city who thinks she knows what she's talking about. But Aaron's just so glad to the point. This is something we've seen a hundred times before and you don't got to think about it or worry about it. This is nothing, which is you know, obviously wrong and sad now when you look at it, but that's definitely an interesting dynamic. I really like that scene where they're sitting there in the, in the police station and they're going over it for the first time. It's like, yeah, this, 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 it's all the same. Yeah, he's just given up. It's just whatever, case closed, someone was killed. We'll never find the killer. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's quite a rich world as well with the First Nations, the racism, all that stuff. That must have been really interesting to, as an actor, just immerse yourself in as part of all that. I mean, you did touch on the fact that you're kind of used to all that cultural diversity and your background. So it must have been just really interesting to have this kind of rich, developed underworld in a way beneath the story of the film. Yeah, the story of the Thunderbird and the mythology surrounding Thunderbird and, and Indigenous groups and that really pay homage to it. It's just an amazing, amazing story. And it, it ripples through the whole Pacific Northwest here specifically, like with the amount of totem poles you go. And, and because I worked at sea, like I traveled all through these places in BC, like Alert Bay, where nobody really gets to go. You go to Alert Bay and there's just hundreds of totem poles and these big, big houses and this huge culture that is quite hidden. In Port Hardy, for example, where we filmed the scenes in the big house, fished with a lot of the First Nations fishermen. I was never on their vessel, but we would be out there together. And so it was interesting to meet them. But also just immersing yourself in that world is such an honor and privilege that I was very fortunate to be welcomed into. When we went to Fort Rupert, the Quagatulth First Nations is located in township called Fort Rupert and it's just outside of Port Hardy and we had just such an amazing experience collaborating and partnering with them to bring the real Thunderbird feel so we made sure that that mythological storytelling was on point and represented well and also brought to you by the Quagmatil First Nations and not by us for example I met with David Knox and we had gone over time of storytelling and sharing and and he gave us the great honor of actually using his family's heritage dance, the Thunderbird dance. So what you see in the film is the first time ever in any film capacity, apart from a film made in 1914 called The Land of the Headhunters. So if you want to geek out later, you can go look that up. But The Land of the Headhunters, the first time ever that that dance has been in a feature film. And so when I look at this and I like, I'm like so proud of all these things that we were able to accomplish. I'm like, oh, look at the fishing. That's authentic, real fishing. Like, that's not some fake actor and some fake boat. This is real when you go see the big house and you're there with Julian Black Antelope and you're watching these ceremonial dances take place, that is as close as anyone's ever going to get to actually being invited into a big house and seeing a real dance and seeing a real ceremony. And so just to pay that forward and, and collaborate to be able to bring these different skill sets that I have, that they have, that Natalie brings, that Aaron Douglas brings and infuse it all together. It was just an amazing experience. I think everybody who gets to see the film and gets to see specifically that portion of the Thunderbird mythology is being treated to such a special and unique story and tale. And I can't speak enough about how much I felt honored and privileged to have that experience. I carved a mask, another partner of mine, Ben Plamond, and him and I, uh, and Ben did most of the legwork, though. We, they carved a mask with David Knox, who's the hereditary chief there. And that was a part of this collaboration. We had to do, and I, I won't say had, we had the privilege to do these and interact on a way that's so not what we're used to. I live down in Vancouver. I'm shaking hands with men in business suits all the time. Here, I'm carving a mask and sharing stories and, and learning about our culture and, and their culture and, and collaborating on a whole different way that I'm very privileged to have gotten that experience. That's once in a lifetime. It beats and trumps everything, I think. That's indie filmmaking to me. And what separates our story from what you would say on, on the Hollywood. I think what we did is everything that Hollywood's lacking in some regards. That's filmmaking, going and building these relationships with different people in different cities, getting to know each other, collaborating bringing each other's skill sets into the light and working on an artistic piece that really is great. And we nailed all those. And I think that that's the reason why I'm talking to you today or people enjoy the film, because I think we portrayed that at least. You're watching a real story. I am a fisherman and this is the Pacific Northwest. And that was the Thunderbird dance. And Aaron and Natalie are, are Canadian. And I'm going off on a rant now, but... No, oh, no, it's all good. I didn't realise that Dan's had never been in a feature film before. So, I mean, I suppose I never really thought about it, but... That's interesting to hear that you got that as a first. That'll be on IMDb trivia somewhere. I want to just, this is the first time that such a thing has ever appeared in a feature film. And 
Yeah, that's cool. Well, it is cool. Those were all his nephews and cousins who did the dance around. And, and we had all the elders there. And everyone was just so, we had massive fire and like these huge totem poles. It was spiritual to say the least. Let's just say it wasn't hard to be in character because it was just so, not only am I so honored and privileged to be here, but I'm proud and I'm going to do as best as I can to make all these things are set up for us to nail it out of the park. And everyone who was there was so excited to be involved in the filming that was going on, plus the dancing that was going on and all the extras that were there. We all were just so pumped to be a part of that. What was it like acting against, a, I presume, a CGI creature? There'd be nothing there at the time. That's something that actors always talk about being a challenge. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I I'd spoke with someone earlier about that. That was actually the hardest scene for me at first because I had never had any experience with it. I feel like I'd be fine now, but like, you're supposed to be in this state of mind and you turn around and there's just this giant green screen in your face that you're supposed to be reacting to. So you have to really create that visualization and trick yourself. And it was probably the most times we had to reshoot a scene. But hey, first time, right? Don't worry. If we're looking to cast someone in the new Lord of the Rings or whatever, I know my green screens, okay? Game of Thrones <laughs> coming out. I know how to ride a dragon. Just a skill now. Everyone needs it. Yeah, it's the reality. you got to have it. So I'm very happy to have that experience. But yeah, it wasn't easy. I'm definitely okay to say that. For your first time, it just took a second to just get your head around very mentally you need to be and not having a scene partner or anything was a bit of a challenge. When I spoke to Nicholas, he talked about how there was little production issues every day. Something would go wrong every day. What was the worst thing for you that went wrong? Like as an actor, you just had never planned for it or never thought it would happen. And then it happened. Nick said that, eh? Yeah. Production issues each day. Wow. That's sad to hear because Mike worked tirelessly to make sure this production went well. And I think on the grand scheme of it, we did a great job with the production. So I'd love to know what issues Nick said. But probably the most difficult thing that happened was there was one day where uh, our wardrobe trailer wasn't there. And it might sound like it's like you have all these working things that are supposed to fall into place to hit a call time. And if one of them doesn't happen the domino effect is just insane it's just a piece of wardrobe but if it's not there you can't shoot so everything else could work but if there's one thing so for me i guess the biggest production issue was just that the other logistical issues that maybe nick talked about really aren't we never missed a call time or we never had any issues so i felt like it was a really good production considering we obviously don't have a massive budget we don't have a massive set of hands to have some big hollywood production that it's you're really pulling on all people to come help for example i had my brother who's a was an oil man and, and a framer he's got his f-350 pulling trailers and i had my dad on set and we had uh, mike morrison he was the producer while we were out there like we had his mom helping out with crafties and pulling every strength that we could and everywhere we could. My brother's in the film, my mom's in the film, my dad's in the film, my cousins are in the film. It was a huge feat. And I think in the reality of being for Mike and I our first time and, and the actual production itself, we got away pretty clean with not having any bigger things. I remember one day we couldn't get a snake and that is a little bit of a logistical issue, but like in the end, we still got the snake in time. I'm not sure what Nick's talking about, but maybe off camera, you can tell me all the issues he brought up. He wasn't actually specific. He just said that when you're making something, things will go wrong sort of every day. So I don't know if it's just stuff that he's used to or whatever, but I was just curious to see if there was something that happened that you thought, oh God, I didn't think this was ever going to happen. You know, but it doesn't seem like it. My buddy Ben, who was kind of the head accountant for our accounting team, he was the one who was driving the trailer with the wardrobe in it. And it was so hard because like, Ben, where are you? And he's like, this is going wrong. This is going wrong. This is going wrong. And I'm like, we can't shoot but you're not mad at the guy it's just no different than you're yelling at each other on a fish vessel because it's loud and there's fish flying everywhere just because you're shouting doesn't mean you're mad i think that's something i learned from the oil rigs as well there's just a sense of urgency that needs to be portrayed and sometimes you can't do that by talking calmly yeah fair sounds like it was relatively well not easy going but relatively at least to plan from what you've said. He's not wrong. There's always little tendencies, but there was nothing that caused us to miss a day, which I think is the key if you're trying to keep your production days down. Something else on your blurb caught my eye. You're searching for a sunken locomotive. So how is that going? That sounds really interesting. It's like James Cameron with the Titanic in a way. To be honest, like, he's a huge inspiration of mine and I hope one day so bad to work with him. And I really feel like we have a lot in common. So 
it wouldn't be so much fanboying out. Yeah, so hopefully this gets seen. I don't know what your reach is, but if you can get it in front of James Cameron, I'd be very appreciative of it. I'll do my best. I can't promise anything, but if James Cameron's listening, then here you go. He's making like a million Avatar films, so you'd have to be in an Avatar film. But I know, but I'm like, James, perfect. I get the dying thing. I know green screens. Let's go. Yeah. I can act. Have you seen my movie? <laughs> I don't have an agent, so you know. I guess that's where I need somebody to promote myself. The train, it, yeah, it's interesting. So I have a, a company called Hoghead Media as well. There's Ocean Twilight Films, there's Hoghead Media, and, and we're doing more documentary stuff. And this, this was a tie-in of two skill sets of the production plus my diving experience. And I was tasked to lead an expedition to go find this sunken locomotive 3512 that went down in 1947 has never been found. Then we wanted to, to tell a documentary around it as well, film not only finding it, but the amazing part about this is it's located in a place called the Slocan Valley. You've probably never heard of it. Most people haven't. And this is a region in Canada, like many, where it's absolutely stunning, but nobody goes. That's everywhere around Canada. So I'm in Vancouver, four hours east in British Columbia is Kelowna, and then four hours east of that, still in British Columbia, I know you could go across like half a year of that time, but it is the Slocan Valley, and it's surrounded by the Selkirk and Monashee Mountains, just huge towering thousand foot mountains on the foothills of the Rockies. And then there's this like 900 foot deep lake right in between. So it's just huge. It looks like something from Switzerland. And there's these three little townships that are on this lake that have now two to 300 people in each one, if that. But back at the turn of last century in the late 1800s, we're talking thousands and thousands of immigrants from the United States, from tons of Scots, Irish, English and Europeans had come and flocked to this valley because there's a massive silver boom and all this money poured into this region. And you have bandits, you've got death, you've got riches of gold. The woods are like haunted. There's old mines everywhere and old wagon trails that have been grown over. There was train robbers in this region. There was at one point tens of thousands of people in this area. And as of the 1920s, 30s, you've got nothing anymore. So it's very haunting. It's very mystical. It's something that once you're there, because of the stunning beauty, and then you're like, wait, there's this history, all these things now dead and gone. And in many ways, this train symbolizes all those other things. So we try to infuse the two of them to, one, take you on the journey of finding this vessel, as well as telling you about the history of the area that we're in. And the two kind of coincide with each other really well. So yeah, I don't know if you want me to spoil it for you or the viewers, but we went on a search and wow, it was quite the experience. It's not quite the Mariana Trench, but... Hidden wonders everywhere, I guess. I think that's true. So it's interesting. So when's the documentary due out? Because that's something that I'll definitely want to watch. Yeah, it's a feature documentary. So we're just finishing it right now. We're editing it. I'll get your email after this. and I'll send you over just a, a quick sizzle that we have if you'd like to watch that. I really think this will be popular over in the UK because I've seen Biggest Little Railway. And it's a train show as well as a history show and all these other things so i hope we can get onto discovery on whatever platform but it's a feature doc and i really hope that we can get it to a big streaming service and, and somewhere because it's a little bit more sellable i think the thunderbird just based on the actual contents of being a doc series and, and the contents that we're doing it's exciting it's educational it's obviously really intense so i'll keep you posted for sure I'm hoping, though, that before you even talk to me about it, you'll see it somewhere. There's that Curiosity Stream, which is a relatively new service that carries a lot of documentaries as well. Curiosity, yeah. I've it. I haven't actually used it, but I'm aware of it. I know some YouTubers I watch have it as a sponsor and things like that. So sounds great. I mean, that's something I'll definitely be interested in. I do love these kind of hidden history stories. You mentioned Haunted Woods. That's very much my wheelhouse. I love hearing about ghost stories and things like that. Well, there's no shortage of this. The reason the train went down is that they were actually, you could go down the valley. There's enough of a bit of a place to have these little towns and stuff. But at one point in this valley, the mountain is so steep when it goes to lake, you just can't build a railroad or anything on it. So they had to actually barge the train down. And on New Year's night at five o'clock in the morning, a deckhand goes out because the way that they had to do it, say this is the tugboat, 
right? Tugboats come at you here. Right here, you're going to have a barge off its starboard side. And right here, you'd have a barge off its port side. And they would load the cars on the barge. The barges are quite huge. So on this one side, there'd be two rails and there'd be four carts on each of these rails. And then likewise here. And this deckhand comes out. And remember, like, this is the lake that all the edges freeze over. It's cold, glacier-filled. It's the middle of winter. It's snowing. It's dark out. It just would have been a really intense moment in time. If I could go back. But what happens is the deckhand comes out and he sees this barge on the port side listing at a 45-degree angle. On there is the locomotive, the tender, the caboose, the crew who sits sleeping in the caboose of the train and some log rail cars. And they have to, in a matter of moments, they wake up the crew. The captain's like, wake up the crew. They wake up the crew. They look and they're like, what can we do? Stupid enough. And this is funny, but we ended up finding the last living member of the train crew, 98 years old. His name's Bill Chapman. Amazing. He was the brakeman. Yeah, World War II. He was in World War II. He's still alive and he's in the documentary. Anyway, so he told us the story exactly. And there were some historical accounts, but he was able to tie us all of our research in. And that all of a sudden, the boat crew was like, can you move the train? It's like, no. One, where two, and three, the boiler's not even going. Anyway, so the moment they find out the train's listing, they had four minutes and they cut the line and in doing so, once they cut the line from the boat, the barge drifted away and then it topples over and the locomotive, the caboose, the tender and the snowplow all go down to the bottom of the middle of the lake. That's why it's in the middle. It didn't just like fall off the sides and uh, the rail cars floated and the barge floated. Just an amazing story and nobody died, but there's tailed rumors of big bounty on that train and things like that that's down there so it's just a wild story of you hear a lot of at least of the old days in north america but i know specifically canadian history are these just really intense stories about perseverance and survival and what was an extremely inhospitable place to survive you talk about imagine leaving edinburgh on a transatlantic boat out of belfast and you head across, you, you arrive in this foreign country that's not very developed in the late 1800s called Canada. And then you arrive in Halifax, you boat over to the mainland in Quebec, then you train to Ontario, then you go on a train all the way across the Canadian Shield, which is Ontario, then into these prairies. The prairies itself is longer than all of the diameter of Europe. So you hop on a train across the great Canadian prairies and keep in mind, you're just this little boy from Edinburgh who's out on this <laughs> big adventure. And then all of a sudden, as you go across this massive plain, you find yourself staring at the massive Rocky Mountains that come out of nowhere. Days and days and days of Canadian wheat fields and tundra and then boom, these things. And then you go through those mountains, which are, we're talking it's winter in Canada. It's cold. There's no path. There's a railroad. There's some roads, but there's no like, it's just crazy to think about hiking and surviving just to eat alone. Uh, meanwhile, there's grizzly bears and all these things. And you find yourself coming down these valleys and finding a region that you want to set foot, and make a living for yourself. However, you're going to do that, whether it be logging, mining, or agriculture, or maybe selling a store, maybe you have some money from your, from your risk ancestors. I don't know. But just the idea of some of these men who found themselves at 20 to 30 years old in Slocan Valley in a mountain in a town called Sandin. So there's a town called Sandin. It's a ghost town. And there's a logbook of everybody who came from anywhere. Once they arrived to the town, they entered their log of like who they are, their age, their height, where they're from. And there was a guy named Patty O'Flynn from Cork. And I always told my girlfriend when I was just searching through, I was just looking and it's like, there's Patty from Pork and he's 23 years old. And then I thought about the journey that that man must have been on to get to that point, to find himself in this crazy place, region of the world, alone, so far, probably knew he'd never see his family again or whatever. Anyways, I just, I do find them just amazing stories to think about how that mass migration 
and what all went around that and how scary it would have been even now for my girlfriend to move to Canada from Ireland is a daunting thing for her to think about her life being here, even though she can FaceTime her parents. The magnitude of that amplified by the fact that you're, you're never going to see them again and you might be lucky to receive a letter. Just daunting. I want to do features. I want to do acting stuff. But when there's these other things and stories that need to be told, it's hard not to pursue them and to have the skill set to put the diving operation together, but to also lead the production team. It was the best thing that could have happened for me during 2020. And what you've described there sounds like your next feature film as well, that journey and go to that place. It could be another unique setting that you bring to life. You're not wrong there. Well, I want to do it right. You'd have to find the, the right Scottish story to, to base it off of and find the, the good actor. And But it's you're absolutely right. What a death-defined journey. I always pictured it. What's that movie with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman from the 90s? They leave for wherever they're from. They come to New York. They fight. Then they travel across the prairies and they get their homeland. There's one like it, but this one is much more intense with the rural side, the harshness of the Canadian environment, the reality that I just feel for at least the thousands of men who would have left their homeland with no idea what they're getting themselves into. It's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it'd be an adventure for sure. And something you can't get nowadays as well, because obviously you get to Canada now, you just hop on a flight and however many hours it is, you're there. And then it's not that there's no challenge to it, but... It's not that you're at sea for weeks or however long it took. Three months across the Atlantic or however many. Yeah, and like, and all you're reading is maybe a Huckleberry Finn book about what it might be like. Or you've seen some map and you look at the advertising. So the Canadian government and the British government put up advertising to come to Canada. And I've seen those archived articles from like 1870s that they would distribute around the UK. And they would be like, the Canadian breadbasket. And it's just with beautiful yellow wheat fields. Come and farm and agriculture and make your money. They came there and they would get six to eight months of winter. We're talking minus 40. And you had to build a house in wood and live in a shack. My grandmother, her parents are from Ukraine. And they immigrated over in the late 1800s. And they had nine kids in a wooden shack that's the size of my living room and survived in northern Alberta. Just blows my mind. You can imagine, and, and maybe this is the loathing, and I know we're totally off, but it's just nice to talk to you, but it's like the loathing for why we might be going to space, just this great unknown. And I think that that would have been enough for a lot of people to be like, I don't know what's there, but that as a placeholder, it's like the great unknown, the adventure that's in that would be enough to take on insurmountable risks and potential failure. Yeah, for sure. So other than this documentary, what's next for you? What have you got planned that you can talk about? Is there anything that's sort of immediate that we should watch out for? In pre-production right now, I've got my next feature called Airband. So it's a coming-of-age story about a, a young man in high school and based around a performance called Airband and him kind of struggling and battling his own adversity to win this competition. Can't say too much more than that other than uh, it's a bit of a mix of one of those old 90s, cheesy teenager movies meets super bad meets uh, Juno. So it's a bit different, but it's not like the type of film you see and the shipper car you see. It's a bit different, but this is a story that I had worked on years ago that I found a great writer to come in and flush out the story. Kristen Benedict, she's from Chicago, met her in Cannes actually. And we're just out there looking for a really top-notch director who I think deserves to tell the story and to do it right. So hope to have that filming here at the start of 2022. Pretty hands full with this one project right now. And then, of course, if James Cameron comes calling, there goes that. That could torpedo everything. Avatar 3 or whatever, then you have to drop everything. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it could happen. You never know. Certainly good luck with that current feature and the documentary as well. I do have one last question, and it's a bit of a lighthearted way to end the interview. I always ask this to everybody because we're a nerdy podcast that focuses a lot on comic book stuff. So I always ask, what superpower would you like to have and why? Always want to be asked this question. I've thought about this lot because there's just so many advantages to having everything. I'm going to skip the Superman type of power that is like all powers. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to be more specific for you. Because of the diving that I did, I thought the best and coolest thing, and I know it might sound like Aquaman, but I'd like to be able to breathe underwater and communicate with fish and mammals, marine mammals. I know it might sound cheesy, but we're talking that's outer space. That is as close as it gets. So I'm going to go final answer, the ability to breathe underwater and communicate with animals. 
Sure. Yeah. So Aquaman. I don't want to say Aquaman, no, but it's <laughs> yeah. Jason Momoa made him cool again, so it's fine. <laughs> what about you? Curiosity. Speed would be mine, because I, I want to be able to write quickly. I want my brain to work quickly. I want to get places quickly, but I still want to see things as I'm going. So I would still travel. Super speed, the flash. Yeah. That would be great. You obviously probably really liked the show uh, Heroes, right? You saw Heroes? In its first season, like everybody else. I liked its first season, and then it was diminishing yeah. returns after that. I always thought that Hero Nakamura had the coolest power with being able to stop time. And yeah. time travel. The time travel and the being able to teleport is obviously just so cool. And if there was anything like that top side, being able to stop time and teleport or to manipulate time, we'll say, as a general mm. whole. And of course, I would want to be a good guy, not a bad guy. <laughs> I think I would just be myself, but with powers. I wouldn't really help anybody. I would just do what I said. I would be everywhere quickly and do everything quickly and then have loads of free time. That'd be nice. Yeah, I guess we're all just in the pursuit of time, right? I'd go through a lot of shoes, though, which would be a problem. Yeah, you'd want a good pair of cross trainers, that's for sure. <laughs> As I burn through them in, like, two seconds. Yeah, it would definitely be just awesome to be able to. And however that travel felt, like, I don't know how it feels your space and time, but there's Quicksilver as well in X-Men, right? He's cool. It's a little bit different than The Flash, the way that they show, at least in the movies, how you see his speed, puts his headphones in, and things still moving around him. I like that kind of speed as well. You'd have to think it'd be quite boring though, because if you're running somewhere and it takes you like an hour to run there, it'll feel like it still takes you an hour to run there, but you'll be there quickly from everyone else's point of view, from your own, it's taking you forever. Yeah, that's true. That would become your reality. <laughs> yeah. The world just going slowly and you... Well, you might be in for a little bit of uh, mental anguish as you get older with that one. Might not be as fun when you're Keep in mind... With being underwater, this would also mean that I can't be killed by a shark. A shark just can't come and eat me when I'm down there. I would have super scales or something. Well, you would need stronger skin and stuff to survive yeah. in the ocean depths. So, yeah. Yeah. There would be a lot of things that come with that. I'd have my own sonar. I could handle all maximum depth pressures so I could go down to the bottom and not be squished into jelly. Yeah, it'd be great. If only life was like that, but it's not. <laughs> That's why we probably both enjoy filmmaking. The imagination that we can run wild with is a unique place to live and to play pretend for real and to talk about things like this are a very happy place that I like to live, at least in my mind. Thank you very much for your time. It's been great talking to you about various things, various tangents. It's, it's always great to hear people be passionate about stuff. That's what these interviews are all about for me is getting things out of people that they might not say to other people. And I feel like we've got that here. I feel like there's some unique stuff in here, especially about the film and about this documentary you're making and everything else. So absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. And likewise, it is nice to share. I know I've done a few of these where you don't really want to talk too much, but it was definitely easy and nice to talk with you. And I hope that it was a little different and unique to what you're maybe used to maybe. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So thank you for your time. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's a great pleasure. I'll come on again when we got this next thing happening. and we'll catch up count on it yeah absolutely love to have you back on yeah thank you that was my chat with colton wilkie i wish him all the best with his future projects if you like what you heard here then you can subscribe on apple podcasts spotify or any major podcasting app apple users please leave us a star rating and a comment if you want to discuss this interview or anything else you can find us on facebook or twitter under neil before blog or leave us a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk as always i hope you'll join us next time on neil before pod